So if I sound a little hoarse today, it's because yesterday afternoon I attended the first ever home game in the Cascade Collegiate Conference of the Walla Walla University Wolves women's volleyball team. And it doesn't really matter whether you win or lose. But we won. Yes. And uh, making the team 1-0, uh, and oh, undefeated in the history of home games in this conference. And uh, in fact, I went to the top of the stands and took a little clip, and I think we might have it, of some of the action. It was absolutely <laughs> tremendous fun. From the prayer at the very beginning, celebrating the Christian spirit, uh, to the enthusiasm of the young women on both teams, and... Uh, Man, it was just fantastic. Our family had such a great time. Such a great time, in fact, that we intend as a family uh, tonight at about 8.30 to make our way down to this same wonderful facility to support our student-athletes here at Walla Walla University and their opponents as well who are also coming to experience the joy of sport. So if you don't have anything fantastic to do tonight, I have a very good suggestion. Uh, fortunately, um, the team is here worshiping with us today, and I've asked uh, Perry Shanko and Riley Sutton, Lauren Bosler, Natalie Sko, and Melissa Barton to assist me. You see, I had so many props for the sermon today that I needed a little bit of help, and also they're going to provide some assistance in reading our text for the day, and if you wish to turn to Acts chapter 16 and follow along. They will be opening up the word that we will then reflect on together. As you can see, this year is no different. Um, I have always looked up to the women's volleyball team at Walla Walla University. So thank you so much for participating. And now uh, the reading of the text from Acts 16. Good morning. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we had expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. But Paul and his companions got in trouble. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. But later, they got out of prison, and this is what happened next. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Thank you so much. From a very early age, we are captured by the joy of possessions, cuddly things, 
tasty things, tough things, things that look like us, things with buttons and more buttons, things that fly, pretty things, productive things, colorful things, and of course the green stuff that gets you things. So what should we make of this, this innate primal desire that we have as human beings to have, to possess, to own our material world? Today we are in part three of our sermon series, Characters and Character, and we study the case of Lydia, who comes to us as a sterling example, one that we ought to emulate in terms of our relationship to our material world. We meet Lydia on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, along about the year 49. You see circled several place names indicated in the chapter with the bold circle around Philippi, and this is the place that Paul and his companions encounter Lydia. So what do we learn of her in the text? Things like she is a worshiper. She is a prayer. Also, she is a woman of leadership, the head of her household. She is a dealer in purple cloth. We discover, yes, that she is a successful international businesswoman in the textile industry. Textiles were both complex and a booming part of the economy in the Roman Empire. Just a a little bit of a summary. We find wool in that period, first from Italy, and of course the various kinds of sheep. There were black wool and white and brown, various shades and hues on those color themes. Also, we find linen from flax that would be used not only for clothing, but fishermen's nets, the sails of ships, and throughout the Roman Empire, awnings and canopies for a variety of amphitheaters. We find cotton first from India and later from North Africa. Also silk from China, the Emperor Caligula famously uh, commissioning a toga in silk to wear to demonstrate his great wealth and power. We also note that weaving had been learned from the ancient Greeks, typically a skill learned by women, but widespread in the era. And then there were a variety of dyes that could be employed on many fabrics, a variety of colors, ranging from red, which was the cheapest, all the way up to the chosen color of purple. To wear purple clothing, to have material that was purple in color, was to make a statement. It was a status symbol. The dye was made from boiling shellfish for several days, which produced a substance that acted as a catalyst to produce this dye. It was expensive. One historian from antiquity says that purple dye is literally worth its weight in silver. It was known to be worn by the rich 
and the famous. And in fact, a phrase developed to be born in the purple. Similar to our phrase, to be born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Anyone born of privilege, of power, political class, ah yes, they have been born in the purple. And so we discover Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, this highly prized material in the first century. Now it's interesting because we learn from reputable scholarship that the name Lydia is likely not only a personal name, but also the company name. Thyatira, where she is from, the ancient name is Lydia, and we suspect that in fact Lydia is the business name, or as we say in our day and age, perhaps the label. So we know of names like Donna Karen, Nicole Miller, Kate Spade, Vera Wang, Calvin Klein. Well, it seems that we might add something like this, Lydia of New York. Or to be a little more accurate, this one, Lydia of Thyatira. This is the woman we have in view, my friends, a successful international businesswoman dealing in material that was prized by the elite. And so the first lesson I think that we can learn from this woman, Lydia worked. She was productive, and she also enjoyed the accumulation, the development of wealth, of capital, and it is in the relationship of these two that we find her admirable. She works and she produces material goods. But are we so sure about that, this idea that wealth can be okay? A quintet of verses from the Old Testament, First Genesis 1, we read there, God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, that is the physical earth, and subdue it. The idea of subdue includes both of these qualities. First, they were to be productive, to work. But also to subdue the earth meant that they were to have a healthy physical relationship with the produce of their labors. Genesis 17, we read the whole land of Canaan. Yahweh says, I will give as an everlasting possession, physical land given by God. In Exodus 20, we read this command, you shall not steal. And of course, to have such a command means that there are things to steal. That is, material things belong to people. Job 24 picks up on this theme. We read there are those who move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. That is, lambs owned by somebody else. Finally, uh, Isaiah 61. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. This quintet, just a sampling 
of passages throughout the sacred text indicating that not only is work and the production of material goods okay, it was designed by God from the very beginning. So how is it that we think about this idea of work and material possessions? Ron Lieber is the personal finance columnist for the New York Times. And in a recent book, which I heartily recommend, The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money, Lieber argues that we need to talk much more to the next generation about money and values. In fact, throughout the book, this is what he's up to, connecting character and coin. The two relate, he says. Notice this paragraph early in his book. He writes, I want to help all of you recognize that every conversation about money is also about value. Allowance is also about patience. Giving, about generosity. Work is about perseverance. Negotiating their wants and needs and the difference between the two has a lot to do with thrift and prudence. And running through all these uh, conversations is a desire for kids to have perspective, to know why they may have more than most people in the world but will probably never have more than every one of their peers. And Lieber urges again and again, parents, grandparents, the adult generation, we need to be having more overt, specific, intentional conversations about money with our children because money is also about values. And part of this, going to the first example we find here with Lydia, to have a conversation about the relationship between work and material goods. Lieber worries in the book a bit about the decline of the value of work and its relationship to material things. This data should alarm us. In 1998, 45% of American high school students had a job. Now, by 2013, that number had fallen to just 20%. Many factors in view from child labor laws to parents who would prefer hobbies and sports to an actual job. But nonetheless, this result, identical surveys. First, Japan. 75% of Japanese children say work is important. In America, just 25% of American children now say work is important. James Fogarty, the clinical psychologist, gives a report of his extensive research around the country in his book, Overindulged Children. And he comes to the conclusion after all of his study that spoiled children in America have four primary things in common. First, they have few chores and responsibilities. They don't work. Two, there are few rules that govern their behavior and schedules. In a sense, they don't work. Three, parents and others lavish them with time and note assistance. In other words, somebody else is doing the work for them. But finally, they have a lot of material possessions, which would not surprise us. 
So his assessment of the American scene, we're very good at possessing things, loads of materials in this country, but there's a problem with tying all that to labor, to work. Lesson number one here in Acts 16, Lydia worked. She connected productivity with material goods. A second observation, Lydia saved. It's quite evident that she didn't just spend everything that she had immediately earned. You may remember the story, famous in the Gospels. A woman approaches Jesus with a bottle of very expensive perfume, and she pours it out and anoints Jesus' feet with it. In fact, this particular event is so significant, Jesus says, this story must be told throughout the history of the world. It's that big a deal. For those of us familiar with the narrative, I think we immediately go to the place of celebrating the generosity of the woman for Jesus. But I think that if we're careful, we discover something much more foundational. Notice Mark 14. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. Now think about that for a second. There's something in the story more foundational than the woman's generosity. How does she acquire something that cost over a year's worth of work. I thought, you know, if this woman was setting aside, we might use this formula, 10% uh, of her earnings every year, how long would it take her to have the money to give this gift to Jesus? A decade. More foundational than her generosity is the character trait of delayed gratification of saving up so that she actually has the capacity to do something so marvelous. The scriptures tell us, though, that she's not alone. The generosity of women who have saved is notable. Luke 8, we read, these women were helping to support them. That is Jesus and the apostles. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Brothers and sisters, we sit in the 21st century as Christians, and among those we should thank, women who were very industrious and good with money, and who saved that money, that the young movement of Christianity would flourish and grow. We owe something to the sisters of the first century, it seems. The generosity of women professionals, Lydia among them. Lesson number one, Lydia worked. Lesson number two, Lydia saved. Lesson three, I think, uh, implied Lydia ate. She enjoyed some of the fruit of her labor. Is this okay? Well, let's go back this time to a quartet of texts from the Old Testament. On consumption. Genesis 1, we read, Then God said, again to Adam and Eve, 
I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. God says, I've made this material world for you and part of the purpose of the material world is that you have the right to consume the fruit of it. Genesis 45, under the prompting of Yahweh, now we read the words of Pharaoh to Joseph, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. And right there in my notes, I have the words French fries right there because the fat of the land, I kid you not, there it is. Coupled with that, Exodus 3, Yahweh speaking to Moses, and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with cream and sugar. And right there in my notes, I kid you not, I've written milkshake right there. It goes with the French fries, you see. Finally, in our quartet of verses, Deuteronomy 20, has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. You see, it's a moral issue, in this case, a soldier, not allowed to go die in battle until first he has worshipped God by enjoying the fat, the milk and honey, the produce of his land. So how can we be wise then in this business of consumption, of eating what the world has to offer? Four questions for your consideration. First, do I have the cash in hand? Have you experienced the difference between saving up and paying off? As a child, do you remember saving up for a bicycle? And even before you were turning those pedals, the very experience of saving up and watching that money grow was exciting in itself. And then the day that you go and you buy the bicycle, free and clear, free and clear. Oh, what a great experience saving up. But maybe you've had the alternative experience. You go on a vacation and swipe the credit card. And two years later, you lament month after month, paying off, paying off, paying off at vacation. Not quite as exciting. It's a big difference, isn't there? Do I have the cash in hand? One good question. A second question, uh, how much bang for the buck? There is a, a scientist by the name of Mary Matheson who came up with a formula for her own children to help them think about how much bang for the buck they were getting for purchases. And she calls it the fun ratio. And it's very simple. Getting to them to think about how many hours of joy per dollar. Interesting. How many hours of joy per dollar? So maybe $30 blown at an arcade gone in just a few minutes versus $30 invested in a swimming pool membership for the summer with many more hours of joy. How much bang for the buck do I get with this particular purchase? 
A third uh, question I think that's useful, does this acquisition build community? A fascinating study, they took four- and five-year-olds, split them into two groups. One group of four- and five-year-olds, they show television advertising about a particular toy. The other group of four- and five-year-olds do not watch this television advertising about this toy. Once they're done, all of the children are ushered into a different space where there are many large sandboxes to play in. The researchers give the children a choice. You can either play with this particular toy that some of the kids had seen advertised by yourself, or you can play with other children in a sandbox. Fascinating. Of the children who had watched the television advertising, 70% said they would rather play with that toy all by themselves than play with the other children. That number dropped in half for the children who had not been exposed to the TV advertising. Just 36% chose to be alone. A robust two-thirds said, no, we would like to play in community with our friends. Interesting. I remember way back, and I think it's about 1982, I was in grade school, and they were developing these miniature arcade games to look exactly like the ones in the arcade, but they were just miniaturized. Maybe some of you remember that. And I think it was a Pac-Man game or something, but a wealthier student in our class, his parents had purchased this pricey game and he was given permission by his parents that he did not have to share it with anyone. No, you can take it to school and play by yourself. And sure enough, he did. Nobody else could play with it. And I remember at recess, there he would sit all by himself playing his expensive video game while the rest of us played in rich and joyful community on the playground. 1982. And of course, now some 30 years later, we worry over video games, gaming, and the isolation it is prompting in so many people, destroying rich community? I think this is a great question. When you go buy something, when I make a purchase, will this have the effect of building and encouraging me to be in community, or will this set me unhealthfully apart? And a final question to consider can I share this with Jesus? Will the purchase of this experience, this toy, this tool, is it something that I can engage God with along the way, or are the two not compatible? Acts 16, Lydia, lesson number one, Lydia worked, and so she had a healthy connection to the material world. Lesson two, Lydia saved patiently, and so she was among those women in the first century who had the capability of investing in the most important company to come around. Lesson number three, Lydia ate. She consumed and evidently healthfully, for she is a worshiper, a prayer. A final lesson, and perhaps this is the punchline of the passage, Lydia gave. She gave. 
a recap of the text our student-athletes read just moments ago. Paul and his companions come to Philippi, and they head to the river where they expect to find a place of prayer. And sure enough, women have gathered praying by the river. Does it strike you as odd that they are meeting out of doors? Well, it should, because in fact, they would have been in a proper synagogue, but in the day, an official synagogue could only be brought together with the presence of ten male human beings. And so apparently they were short of that number. You see, the church has struggled with gender for a very long time. So Paul and his companions come, and they see these women who have gathered. Lydia is baptized as head of household. The whole household joins her in this baptism. And what does she do next? Uh, But to say, we don't need this outdoor place of prayer anymore. Why don't you please come to my house? And we know from historians of antiquity that the early church meets not in houses like this one, but rather most likely in the homes of wealthy people who opened up everything they had that the church might gather therein. In fact, the Anglican pastor and theologian John Stott makes this observation about the story of Lydia. For once the heart is opened, the home is opened too. For once the heart is opened, the home is opened too. Perhaps you saw it not terribly long ago. The story of that bride and groom, Fethula and Ezra, from Turkey, who decided to turn their wedding feast into the feeding not of 5,000, but the feeding of 4,000 Syrian refugees streaming across the border. Now, I have to tell you, on, for any occasion, on any day that we might excuse someone, man, you deserve to be a little selfish on this day, Would it not be a bride on her wedding day? But yet the caption of the article reads, the most generous bride in the world. You see, when your heart is open, your home is open too. When your heart and mind is open, your car is open too. When your heart is open, your bank account is open too. When your heart is open, your boat is open too. When your heart is open, all of your tools and all of your toys are open too. When your heart and mind is opened up to the incredible love of Jesus Christ, it opens up everything in our material world too. And so it is with Lydia. 
And so in a moment or two, when we sing, this is our Father's world, not only worship of Him, but a statement of our understanding of the material world and a desire to serve and to love those who have been displaced on our planet. Okay, so what does this look like? Well, in the Bryan household, it's kind of old-fashioned, really. But we have been working on the concept of an allowance, taking Lieber's suggestion that you ought to have meaningful conversations with your kids. And so, uh, not nearly this much, not even close, but uh, the concept of money has been introduced. And of course, first, there's uh, been uh, numerous conversations about the importance of saving. Uh, the older of the two is really getting this, what happens when you accumulate that jar and what is possible. The younger one is still figuring out a little bit about how that works down the road. And then conversations about spending as well. Um, the, the whole bang for the buck, joy ratio. Uh, it's a marvelous discussion to have with your children. And uh, sometimes letting them make mistakes at spending where they're kind of bummed that they made that particular choice can be useful in the process. But I think most of all, it's been exciting for me uh, to talk with my own children about giving. In fact, a, a couple of weeks ago, I forgot this whole process on Friday of allowance and forgot to prompt on Sabbath morning. And I noticed Sabbath afternoon that William was a little bummed. He was down, and Nicole said, you didn't, help reminding, you didn't help remind him about giving his offering at church, and he was really sad. And I was sad about that too, but part of it made me really happy because I want my kids to be sad if they don't get to experience the joy of giving. Do you know there's so much I love about being a part of this congregation? But one thing for sure, I love it that this church is dead set to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. I love it that we love the gospel in all of its purity. I love it that we want to care for the displaced in this valley and the displaced half a world away. I love this church for its mission that is better than any mission anywhere at any time. And so it's easy for me to love knowing that when I put my nickels investing in the local ministry of this place, it is money well invested in a cause my heart is wildly open to. Lydia, let's work. Let's save. Let's enjoy the fruit of our labor. And let's give like we've never given before. Why? This is our Father's world.